Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Highly Functional. This is Brianne Showman, and I am joined today by Stephen Sashin, owner of Zero Shoes. Yes, naturally, we did get into the discussion of traditional versus minimalist shoes, but more importantly, is we had a really good discussion around movement and why good movement matters. Whether you are an athlete, a clinician, or a coach, I think you'll find this conversation highly valuable. So let's tune in. Stephen, thank you for joining me today. How are you? I could use a nap and a foot massage and a really good meal and a vacation. Otherwise, awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it is pushing four o'clock in the afternoon, so a meal and a foot massage this time of day would be nice. You know, you can never go wrong with a foot massage. So true. Or, yeah, or interestingly, head massage. I, yeah, that's one of my fantasies. Like, like if I had an infinite amount of cash, daily foot massage, and then someone, you know, shampooing and you know, doing this thing to my head. That would be really nice. I like that idea. <laughs> yeah, there's something to it. I think we need to, this is a new business idea that we've got. <laughs> we'll have to figure that one out. Um, well, cool. Oh, I'm excited right. to get you on today. I love your company, your mission, how it all came about. And so first and foremost, who are you? And kind of just give a little bit of your background. Zoics. Um, uh, I don't even know where to begin on that. So I'm a guy who sells <laughs> shoes. Um, I have a really odd background that led to this. I mean, it really feels like for both my wife and I, every because she's my co-founder, um, everything that we've done in our life has sort of, you know, turned into this. Um, as an undergrad, at Duke, I was doing research on cognitive aspects of motor skill acquisition. I'm a former All-American gymnast. I'm a current All-American Masters sprinter. So I'm one of the fastest guys over 55 in the country. Um, I've, I have this weird thing where I'm good at figuring out the essential something about motion. So I've taught everything from running to gymnastics to Zen archery to yoga to Tai Chi to tap dancing to, um, I mean, I, I just kind of pick those things up. I don't know what it is. And, and it, when I say the essential things, what I mean is um, a perfect example of this. When I was working with this one sprinting coach and friend of mine, he was saying, you know, when you're in the air, you got to get your hips over your feet better. I said, dude, I'm in the air. There's nothing I can do to rearrange everything that way to what, you're, what you mean. What you really mean is that I didn't take off in a way that put my hips over my feet in the way that you want. And he goes, well, yeah. So he was just repeating what he had, someone had said to him, and he somehow had figured out how to do what that coach was asking for. And this is a very common thing. Coaches just, you know, repeat what they were taught. Or my favorite thing is like um, at high school track meets in particular, you hear this, you hear the parents yelling to their sprinter kids, get your knees up. Well, you can't just lift your knees up. Having your knees up is a, an effect of hitting the ground at the right angle and the right with the right amount of force. It's a reactive thing, not an active thing. And so for whatever reason, I'm just, I just have a knack for picking those things up. And, um, and what else? And I've been an internet guy since before there was an internet. And um, I mean, literally, you know, there was before the internet when there was CompuServe and GeoCities and AOL. And I'm going to really date myself. And IRC for people who know that, and a thing called the, the called Echo in New York and the Well in in uh, San Francisco. This is all pre-internet communication stuff. And so again, put all of this together, and uh, here we are. <laughs> sums it up. 
I kind of sums it up. Actually, I want to back up a little, uh, to half a step. Um, pride is not one of my things, but there are two things that I'm really proud of, which are, it's surprising to me because it's never been something that was my thing. But since um, co-founding Zero Shoes with my wife, there are, I have good friends who've been footwear designers for 40 plus years who treat me like a peer. And in part, because when I say, how come no one's ever done this thing, something I made up and they go, yeah, no one's ever done that because you don't know anything about footwear. And so you're just viewing this from a perspective. And similarly, um, I'm very good friends and people treat me as peers who are, who, who are biomechanists and who do research on biomechanism, biomechanics um, and physicists who, you know, look into this. Uh, and uh, oh, yeah, another weird background thing. I was teaching old guys physics when I was 14. I don't know why. Um, so there, you know, again, just the, the fact that, that people who are professional researchers in these domains um, treat me like a peer is something that I really enjoy. And I don't, it's not personal. It's just this weird collection of the way my brain works that um, I'm able to identify things. I mean, I'll give you a fun example just for the fun of it. Um, the new maximalist shoes that have come out where people are ostensibly setting best setting PRs because of the construction of the shoe. There's a very famous footwear expert. And I put air quotes around expert because that's my way of saying he has his head completely up his butt. He has a case of serious cranial rectal reorientation syndrome. He said, well, the carbon fiber in the shoes is acting as a lever. And instantly I went, that's not possible. A lever has a fulcrum, think diving board. Um, there is no fulcrum in the carbon fiber of a shoe. It doesn't work that way, the way the foot moves. And yet people repeated what he said. It's like, well, it must be because of the lever of the carbon fibers. No, no. And then people said, well, it's because like if the, Har the Harvard track, the indoor track, people ran faster because it was tuned to help them run faster. And it was, the Harvard track acts like a trampoline if you are the right weight running at the right speed. If you're the wrong weight, wrong speed doesn't help you. But if you're, you know, middle distance runner, you're going to be about the same. You're going to weigh about 135 pounds. You're going to be about five foot eight, you know, whatever it is. And so, and they said, and they said, well, the shoes act like the Harvard track. I said, no, 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 they can't because the Harvard track works because you have two ends of the, the, the boards of the track that are suspended or they're anchored down and you're landing in between those somewhere. And those, because it's anchored, that's what allows it to flex. There's nothing in the way that shoe moves as your foot moves that acts like these external points that act as as fixed pieces where you're bouncing off of that what may be happening on that shoe is that the foam sucks less than other foam or is tuned to a particular weight and speed that you happen to be and oh by the way it wears out really really quickly and i mean i just keep going about these things and this is the stuff that was that's sort of instantly obvious if you know anything about physics and there's all these people who are experts who make these assumptions or comment about why this shoe seems to do something for which there is zero evidence. So anyway, my, I guess my reason for this random crap is because um, for whatever reason, the way my brain is well fitted for this crazy situation of um, dealing with natural movement where the Let's kind of dive in. We will get to more of the shoe rant as well, um, because I do want to want to just have that discussion. But okay. um, I know a lot of what you're passionate about is just helping people move better. Obviously, we start from the foot, from the ground up, starting with the foot. But just in general, why are you so passionate about just helping people in like move better in general? 
It's a really good question. Um, I would say because, well, look, as, a, as an athlete in a number of sports over the course of my life, uh, the thing that you discover is doing it wrong hurts and gets you injured and doing it right feels good and works. And there's, again, a lot of, this is going to sound weird. I'm going to have to answer this from a business perspective. I don't like it when people sell you something by lying to you. I don't like it when people make money by lying to other people. And when it comes to movement, whatever activity you're doing, even if it's just sitting down, doing it wrong can be bad, doing it right can be good. And a lot of the information we get about how to get over those aches and pains of injuries and how to do it well is, let's, I don't want to call it lying deliberately. It's just inadvertently lying. It's people who don't have the eyes to see. People who are giving you information, like again, get your knees up you know, when you're running. That's the effect, not the cause. To find the cause is just something I'm always, I've always been really interested in. I like to know what's underneath what people believe and let's find the thing that's the real cause. And when it comes to movement, this impacts our life so, so dramatically, especially as we get older, where you start seeing a lot of impingements and a lot of problems with movement. And I wonder why, and I wonder what you can do. So like at the World Masters Track and Field Championships back in whatever it was, 11, about 12 years ago when I was there competing, there's a bunch of 85 plus athletes and um, you know, they're, what they're doing is amazing, but what they're doing is also not that impressive if they weren't 85. So, you know, the high jump record is barely clearing the pit. <laughs> so, you know, they can barely make it over the pad they're landing on and they can't arch their back if they're doing, trying to do a Fosbury flop. And it's like, why is that? What's going on with bodies as we try different things, as we age, um, as we deal with injuries? that allows us to be better or worse. And I, for whatever reason, I, somebody asked me a horrible question. They said, what are you gonna do when you can't run anymore? And I almost burst into tears. Like that was the most horrible thing you could ever say. It may happen at some point, you know? And if it does, I wanna know why. I wanna know what to do about it. I wanna know, you know, I, I don't know. I, for whatever reason, I've done so many things involving movement. It's just always been, um, it's always been interesting to me about how do we do it right and who's giving you the right information. Sorry, last weird thought that popped in my mind from that question. When I was 15, I had a bunch of injuries as a gymnast and I went with a guy who I won't name because it would be too humiliating for him, who was one of the first sports medicine doctors. He was the, one of the few people who, who claimed he was a sports medicine physician. And he took a look at my very flat feet and said to me, well, you can't be a gymnast with feet like that. What I didn't say out loud, because I was only 15, I only thought it was, I'm one of the best tumblers in the country, so clearly you're a moron. And that was very telling to me. There's a guy who I just paid a lot of money to go see, because he's a very well-respected sports medicine physician, who just said something so patently stupid and out of step with reality, that, uh, you know, that just always got to me. Um, I asked my doctor once as a kid, you know, cracking bones, is that, does that cause problems? And he said, oh, there's been research on it. Absolutely not. But I've heard from hundreds of other people that doing that causes problems. Again, for whatever reason, I just like finding out what's true. I guess because it's simpler and it allows us to live more fully and it's a horribly horrible way of saying it but you know i'm just i, I don't know i'm always curious about it. sorry yeah, last thing to answer your question 
Yeah. I'm, I, I like to figure, I like to break patterns. I like to find out, you know, like where things are stuck and I like to find out how to unstuck them. So one day I realized that I crossed my arms, my left arm on top, I think. Actually, I don't remember anymore because I decided to try the other way. Now, try that. Just if you can do this. Seriously, try it. Cross your arms and then cross them the other way. Now, I can't see your arm, so I can't see if you're happy. Oh, I could tell from that look, look upward look that you're <laughs> you stand up? <laughs> a little challenging. Yeah, it's a weird thing to you know cross your arms the wrong way. I can't remember which way I normally cross them anymore. And so things like that just interest me for reasons that are probably genetic or because I, you know, lived on a plutonium mine or something, you know, I was dropped on my head as a child. I'm not saying any of these are good things. It's just the way this wacky brain works. You know, I find it interesting. No, in way useful. What was that? <laughs> what did you said, say? Is that in any way useful? <laughs> I'm sure it is. <laughs> no, I find it interesting okay. that, um, you mentioned you're good at finding or that you've always had a knack for picking up these patterns and like figuring out how to get someone to move better. Um, only because I like that's the eye that I have when I'm working with athletes is really fine figuring out where those little faults are. And I get the people asking me all the time, like, how did you learn this? And I truly just like, I don't, see I don't know. <laughs> like it's just right. what I do. Well, you know, actually I have, I have an interesting theory about some of this that just popped into my head. So, or I've thought about it, but I never put it together this way. Human beings process lots of information unconsciously because there's no value to process it consciously. So for example, we can kind of tell when someone's looking at us and that was something that we developed when we were potentially someone's lunch. And there's no value to getting that information consciously to then respond because by then you're dessert. So there's a lot of stuff that we perceive that we're not aware how or that we perceive it. And I think certain people have just um, are attuned to that slightly differently than others. And we all do it in different ways. But in the same way, someone's good at math, good at history, someone's good at running, someone's good at whatever. You know, some people are just like a little more attuned to that for whatever reason, like a, a version of this. I had a friend who was studying acupuncture and he was working on someone who's well, like, I'm not sure where that spot is. And I went, oh, it's right there. He goes, how'd you know that? I went, well, can't you see it? It's right there. Now, I wasn't seeing anything. I don't know what I was doing, frankly, but there was just, you know, some collection of information that um, led me to going, well, it's gotta be right there. Or isn't it weird that we can recognize someone from a hundred yards away by how they walk? You know, that's a weird thing. And I think a lot of what you and I are talking about is just the extension of that thing that we all do. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, that's Bob, because I can see just in two steps that that's a familiar pattern. And so I guess that's what I'm really going for is human beings are pattern recognition and generating machines. And some people just pay attention to certain patterns and other people pay attention to different patterns. And then when it gets to pattern generating, it's just, this is a conversation I have a lot, is that we are so good, and this gets into that movement conversation, is we're so good at learning bad patterns that cause us to get injured yes. or cause us to have all these problems. And it's so hard for us to then relearn these better patterns of movement. Let's talk about the bad patterns to begin with. Why, and I don't have an answer for the following thing. We often see how kids move like their parents, including think patterns that are really not healthy. 
Why? I mean, I don't believe that it's 100% genetic that we end up moving the way our parents do. I think, there, it's, I think there's a big learned behavior thing. Why do we do that? We do it to fit in with the clan, basically, is my assumption. Could be wrong. That's an interesting thing. And the learning new movement patterns, our brains are, um, they're not really good. <laughs> and what I mean is, um, when I was a kid, there was a guy, I think he was on PBS doing a lecture, and he said, what's the purpose of thinking? And everyone had all their answers and he let them do their answers. And finally he said, the purpose of thinking is to stop thinking. Thinking is the process of taking incoming information, figuring out the pattern and reacting to that. So the next time we see that pattern, we don't have to spend all that energy. We just know what to do. So our brains are wired to patterns and they're not wired to then get out of them because that's energy inefficient. And so learning new motor patterns is very challenging for two reasons. One is energy inefficient, so we're wired to avoid it. And the other is that um, we experience the feeling of laying down new neural pathways as frustrating, which encourages us not to do it. And so if we, we have to reframe the process of learning in order to do it at all, we forget that the way learning physical movements happens is A, um, you try something you feel awkward and uncoordinated, you rest and your brain integrates something of what you just did, then you try it again and you're better at it even though you hadn't tried it again in between. I mean, isn't that weird? You can get better from resting. So that should make people you know, really pause. And the, um, and the other thing is it, you have to do this. So my undergraduate research was cognitive aspects of motor skill acquisition. The other thing is that to learn a new pattern, you have to break it down into small enough, slow enough bits to be able to really get what you're trying to do in a conscious way. And then over time, for whatever, however it works, your brain you know, sequences that, and then you get better and better at it and faster and faster until you not only don't think about it, but you can't think about it to do it correctly. It's so far back in our unconscious processing that you just sort of initiate it and it's on autopilot. Um, and that's an amazing phenomenon but it takes time, it takes repetition, it takes dealing with that frustration thing. I mean, you're working hard to overcome a lot of evolutionary biology. And it's one of those situations too, where it's like, when, not that like, we shouldn't say when it doesn't matter, but I'm gonna kind of use that phrase just for this purpose, is like in practice or in a training session, you can lock in on that good pattern without an issue, but then you get to competition mode or race mode. And all of a sudden it's just like you, gone. it's gone and you are back in your old patterns again. Well, I think that's just cause you, you know, we haven't gone through the time and repetition to get it so locked in that we can get there. I have a whole theory about how to train sprinters, for example, that no one's ever done before that involves everything we just said and some things about how you train gymnasts. So, you know, gymnastics is crazy. The, the, the things that gymnasts learn how to do are just flat out insane. Triple twisting, double backflip. I mean, what? Um, and there are processes for doing that. And it's all very high speed. And, you know, it's funny. You probably do this as well. Um, what, what sports are you most familiar with personally? I played soccer growing up and then running and CrossFit. So I imagine like when, if you're watching a soccer game, if you're really good at soccer, you can, and you're with someone who doesn't really know soccer well, you react to things that you're seeing before they know what you 
too, because you can almost see it before it happens. Like when I'm watching gymnasts, I can tell if they're going to crash before they take off. And other people watching are like, how do you, how do, you do that? I go, because it's obvious. I mean, you see it right there. So, you know, these high speed things are, are, are super, super interesting. But here's a flip side video of Ben Johnson, the Canadian sprinter, uh, on the track when he was, he's about my age, on the track recently. And he, um, you know, he's probably gained 50 pounds compared to when he was competing. Um, but the guy moves perfectly. His form is impeccable because he just put in the time and effort over and over. He can't do it wrong anymore. In fact, that coach that I mentioned about the hips and feet, he said that the whole idea is to get to the point where you just can't, not only are you doing it right, but you can't do it wrong. And that's a lot of repetition, but, I, but ironically, not as much as people think, like the whole 10,000 hour rule. That's nonsense. Um, no sprinter or gymnast has ever put in 10,000 hours. It's not physically possible. But different people have different skills, different neuroplasticity skills, if you will, for uh, developing new neural pathways. And that's what it takes. And so if you can't do it at high speed, you, haven't, you just haven't built up to the point where you can't do it wrong. Yeah, that's, that's a great point there. Transitioning a little bit, still kind of in movement, but going switching directions to the shoes a little bit. Why is it that, so when we're talking, let's go running specifically, when we're talking good running technique and where that foot should land underneath us, and I'm not going to get into like what perfect running technique is, but with that foot where it's landing to decrease forces in the body, etc. what what's going on in traditional shoes that does not allow that to happen that does when we're talking more of a zero drop minimalist type shoe? Um, okay. So you'll be able to find seeming exceptions to almost everything I'm going to say, but they're probably, they probably aren't. And the gist is <clears throat> you, you nailed it in your question. It's about the form, not the footwear, but certain footwear informs the form. And so let's talk about what that can be. Um, again, and this goes back to patterns. Let's start, let, actually, let's start with this. Go to an elementary school when you can and watch the littlest kids run, if you can do that without getting arrested. And you will see that they often have this weird look on their face when they're running. What's it called? Uh, smiling and laughing. They do it for fun. They're enjoying it. And often, especially if they haven't spent a lot of time in shoes, they have amazing form. They get their feet under their center of mass, not using too much energy. They have the right. And again, they do it for fun. They stop when they're not having fun. Then they start again a few moments later. Well, then you watch them once they got into get once you get them in regular running shoes and stop doing it like that anymore. Like what changes? And there are a number of things that change. One is that the shoes have enough padding that they're not feeling the ground anymore. You have a quarter of the more nerve endings in the soles of your feet than anywhere, <clears throat> pardon me, than your finger, but your fingertips and lips. That's to give your brain information about what's going on at the bottom of your body to help control the rest of your body. If you're not giving your brain that information, then you make your feet kind of numb, and numb feet are dumb feet. So, one issue is when you have a shoe with a bunch of cushioning, you can't feel what you need to feel to move properly. In fact, what can sometimes happen is your brain will tell you to hit the ground harder just to try to feel something. And if you're hitting the ground harder, 
with a shoe that has a flared sole, you're going to be landing on something that is um, further out than where your foot would normally land. It creates a moment arm that creates hyperpronation possibly. So by making something numb and then changing the geometry of your foot, essentially, you're messing with what your body would naturally do and you're creating situations that could be, could cause injury. Um, so, so another thing with footwear, I like to point out, just take a look at uh, the shape of the toe box of a shoe and then take a look at your foot. Most toe boxes for most athletic shoes are pointy. Most feet are not, unless you've shoved them into shoes, like you know, old Chinese women who are getting their feet bound. So that creates problems, because if you can't move and bend and flex your toes, if you can't move your big toe, your first ray there, you're not engaging the arch properly, and the arch is one of the most important things for having, for having effective movement. If you don't get your plantar fascia and your arch, all those bones in the right alignment, then your you're basically just wasting energy is the simplest way I can put it. Um, and a fun version of that, we have um, some professional cyclists who wear our shoes when they're off their bikes. One of them was wearing one of our shoes on his bike after he was done with his training ride. And he called us and said, I'm putting out more power with your shoes on than my SPD clips or cleats. It's like, what's up with that? I go, yeah, you, in your shoes, Everything's supported and stiff, and so it makes this whole arch thing weak. When you don't have that, you're creating a strong arch which preloads your ankle, so you're just getting more force into the pedal more effectively. That's my suspicion. We're testing that now. <laughs> so, um, so, 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 um, to your question, the, another thing that shoes do, <clears throat> they typically elevate the heel. Um, do you know why most running shoes have elevated heels? You've told me, but I would love you to tell the story. Let's take a quick break to talk about zero shoes. You know I love being barefoot. I am barefoot as much as possible. But when you're out in public, sometimes that's frowned upon. And when you're walking around on concrete and asphalt in the Phoenix summers, it's highly unsafe. That's when zero shoes comes in handy. These shoes allow my feet to be as barefoot as possible, to allow my feet to still work like they were made made to work. And the great thing about these shoes is they last. They have a 5,000 mile sole warranty, meaning you rarely have to replace these shoes. And they have a wide range of options. So whether you're looking for sandals, something for casual wear, or something for your sports or work, they have you covered. You can go check them out at zero shoes. That's spelled X E R O shoes.com slash go slash get your fix PT. And you can find all of my partnerships at get your fix slash partners. And now back to our conversation. Way back when Bill Bowerman, when, he, when Nike was getting started, they were sharing a building with some, I think they were sports podiatrists, might be orthopedic podiatrists. And Bowerman said, we're getting all these new runners. We're getting Achilles tendonitis. What do you recommend? And the doctor said, well, clearly their Achilles tendons have shortened from wearing higher heeled dress shoes. So make a wedge and make a higher heeled shoe to accommodate their Achilles. Okay. Um, well, they had no reason for saying this. In fact, 30 years later, a friend of mine was at a track meet with one of these podiatrists and said, you know, your basic design has become the design of all modern athletic footwear because the shoe industry is a bunch of copycats. If something starts selling well, everyone else copies it because they're terrified they're never going to sell another shoe again. And so it became the thing. Um, anyway, so my friend said, you know, your design became ubiquitous. What do you think about that? And one of these doctors said, 
Yeah, that was the biggest mistake we ever made. So we, we made it up. We had no evidence for this Achilles shortening thing. It was just, we were making a lot of prosthetics. So we were seeing everything through a prosthetic lens, but we had no evidence for any of that. And it clearly causes problems. It messes with your posture, changes where, you're, where, you're, where your foot lands. So Dan Lieberman at Harvard was in Africa and took some habitually barefoot runners who, when you look at their form, it's just delightful. And then he put shoes on them with high elevated heels. And just because when their foot, barefoot, was you know, naturally about to skim across the ground before they landed on their midfoot or forefoot, now when they engage that same form, because of the elevated heel, the heel is hitting the ground in front of where it otherwise would because you just put something in the way of it. And there's no amount of cushioning that you can provide to a heel that's, that, that ameliorates that force. I mean, it just, it, you nail it. And when you land with your foot in front of your body that way, I saw this, I was at my physical therapist today, this elbow stuff treated and um, there's a picture of two runners and one of them is landing his you know his foot had just hit the ground and his leg was completely straight so he's not using the muscles ligaments and tendons that act can act as shock absorbers and springs and protect the joints that force and Lieberman showed this just goes straight up through your joints you just put on the brakes because you're landing with your foot in front of you and that force is going straight up the straight thing that you just put on the ground so when you if you you can't do that uh, barefoot because it hurts too much. <laughs> you can't do that in truly minimalist shoes. And I make that distinction because truly minimal shoes are closer to barefoot and it hurts too much. And if you give your brain, you know, you tell your brain, I'm going to keep doing this thing and it hurts, your brain will eventually figure out unconsciously as if, if it's doing pattern recognition, how to stop hurting yourself so much. Cause why would you do that? unless you believe no pain, no gain, and then you'll override that and that's really stupid. But, um, uh, but point being that, what the hell was the point there? Um, all that cushioning, you know, just can't do what your body would naturally do on its own. Oh, it was that, I say truly minimalist shoes because Irene Davis at Harvard identifies what she calls minimal, par, truly minimalist and partial minimalist shoes. I said, if you weren't being politically correct, you would mean truly minimalist and fake minimalist and she'd not argue with me. The fake minimalist shoes were typically sold by the major shoe companies and they have enough padding, enough cushioning that you can't feel if it hurts enough to do that natural change to your gait that would happen if you experimented slowly with something closer to barefoot. That makes sense. That makes sense. It makes sense. But, you know, but the reason that we have to have these conversations where people go, that makes sense is because we've had 50 years of footwear manufacturing manufacturers saying things that don't make sense in ways that make it look like they make sense. So yeah. when Adidas has boost foam and they bounce a two pound steel ball off the boost foam and they show how bouncy it is compared to the other foam that no other company has ever used, um, we go, oh yeah, I wanna be bouncy like that. Ignoring that you are not a two pound steel ball. Yeah, and, and it's tough because the, like, you go into a running store expecting to get some good information from them, but, and I, to me, so full disclosure, my first year of PT school, I worked at a running store, so I know right. how they function. Um, well, wait, so how do they, how do they teach you what to say to people? Um, they basically taught us what the shoe companies were telling them, like, this is what Adidas is, like, this is the purpose of this in Adidas, and this is the purpose of this in Asics, and it's like, that's all they know is what those shoe companies are telling. And so it's like, there's no way to get any other information for like easily, I should say. Well, yeah, because you could do the research and find it out. But 
they, they do make it a little hard because all the research that comes out against traditional footwear, yeah, that doesn't get a lot of publicity. Um, or when it does, the big shoe companies, the big shoe companies who've spent billions of dollars on advertising get the last word. So there's a book that Runner's World put out called The Complete Guide to Barefoot Minimalist Running. We're not in it. It just so happened that my best friend from college was the president of the company that published that book after they published the book. And I said, can you find out why we who had done more for the whole barefoot running biz at that time than anyone else was not in that book? And he called me back and said, yeah, you weren't an advertiser in runner's world. So, so <clears throat> this whole idea of there's a way that you run or a way that your foot works that you need a particular shoe. This is very common. You go into running shoe stores and that's what they do. That's what they teach people to do. Um, but there's research that shows that this is complete nonsense. So the army took roughly 900 people, split them into two groups. One group, they split those into three different categories based on how their foot moved, et cetera. And so they got the right shoe that was being prescribed by shoe companies. And the other group just got a random shoe. No difference in performance or injury rates. Zero. What a shock that that got no attention from the mainstream press or all these other companies because that completely eliminates the ability for one shoe company to claim they're better than another shoe company or to give you some testing methodology to prove that you're a special unique little snowflake that needs this kind of shoe that they happen to make for special little snowflakes like you. So it's the research is out there, but it doesn't get press because these shoe companies have spent billions of dollars on advertising with people and they're going to get the last word whenever there's, you know, something that comes out saying, Hey, what they're saying isn't true. And that brings up the, the idea that like every new technology that comes out with these shoe companies is that they're going to, okay, they do some that say they're going to make you faster, but majority are like decrease injuries, decrease this problem or it's for this problem. But it's like, but then you look at it, we wouldn't still have 80% of runners injured every year. Right. If this actually worked. Correct. Well, even more, um, if you look at the new technology, it's always some form of cushioning. Mm -hmm. I mean, where's the new part? <laughs> it's just some different form of the same thing. We're like, with footwear, especially running shoes, we're like, we're living in the story of the boy who cried wolf, except that in that story, the villagers eventually stopped running to see what was going on. Here, the shoe companies are, you know, they're the shoe company that cried cushioning, and but we keep running. I mean, despite the fact that, as you said, we've never seen any difference in injury rates since the advent of the modern athletic shoe. And that's unbelievable. Here's a great one. So there's a company that um, advertises that their shoe reduces injury. Um, I don't know if I should name the company. Let's just say it rhymes with Mikey. Anyway, um, so Mikey has an independent study that, uh, and it's independent, even though they paid for it and they designed it, someone independently performed it. And it, it's, they have a new shoe, it's the React Infinity Run not even that new anymore. And they said, designed to reduce injury. That's how it's advertised. As if any shoe was ever designed to increase injury, but ignoring that. Um, and it said that, you know, reduces injury by 50%, which when you look at the study, it's exactly what happened. They compared it to their best selling motion control running shoe. And in a 12 week study, that best selling shoe injured a little over 30% of the people wearing it. And in the shoe that was designed to be better, it only injured 14 and percent in under 12 weeks. This is good news. This is like saying, I want to take you out to a restaurant tonight. You have a choice. The restaurant that gives food poisoning to one out of seven patrons or a one out of three patrons, which would you like? I mean, 
are you nuts? So, um, but again, this stuff just goes unquestioned. Here's a variation on that that I find hysterical. <clears throat> um, one a guy that I know in the footwear business said, the specialty running stores don't like minimalist shoes because they think they're dangerous. I said, haven't they noticed that everyone, almost everyone who's walking into their store is walking in because they got injured in the shoe that they already bought from that store that's not dangerous? <laughs> I mean, this is just, you know, reality 101. But when, you, you know, when you're looking through a cushion shoe lens, all you see is people who need cushion shoes. Yeah, that, Despite, you know. And we both know that it's like anything that's different from the norm is always going to get questioned and backlash. And but, but here's the joke. We're not different from the norm. This was the norm up until 1970-ish. This is true. <laughs> We're not the intervention. They're the intervention. And yet it doesn't get questioned because... Yeah. It, that evolved at a time when advertising and consumers were a little, well, advertisers are smart and consumers were naive. And so they were able to, again, and I say this with nothing but admiration, they crafted really good stories that simply weren't true. And now we've been hearing these stories for so long that we assume, we just take it as real. We mm -hmm. think we need arch support because there's something wrong with our feet. Made up fiction. We think we need padding because, you know, running is hard on your joints. Fiction, if you run properly. I mean, everything that they say that we need, it's a very simple story. I mean, the cushioning one's a good one because cushioning usually does feel good. Sit on a chair, sit on a couch, lie on a bed. Cushioning is good. But if I ask you to drop and do 20 push-ups, you're going to do it on a memory foam mattress or the ground. Yeah. Perfect point right there. <laughs> <laughs> So for someone who is used to running in traditional shoes with cushion, what's your best way or what do you suggest to people for transitioning to something that's more minimalist? It's a good question. Let's talk about what the shoe company said. So when this whole conversation started in 2010, really, they said, well, clearly you've been wearing a really high heeled shoe. You just got to go a little lower, a little lower, a little lower, a little lower. Hey, guess what? We make shoes that are a little lower, a little lower, a little lower, a little lower. Um, that's uh, nonsense, doesn't work. So again, like back to Irene Davis's point, the partial minimalist shoes still have enough cushioning that you don't get enough feedback to naturally be, to engender that change in gait. So what I say is you go cold turkey. You either switch to something like zero shoes or you go barefoot, either way works. Um, barefoot would be ideal, frankly. And you, what you wanna do is just a very small dose. I mean, the instructions for running barefoot that I like to give, um, Find a nice, smooth, hard surface. It's going to give you the most feedback. Go for a super short run, 20 seconds. And if you're not having fun, do something different until you are. Now, what that really means, if I get a little more detailed, is see how you feel the next day. If you feel good, then do 30 seconds the next time you go for a run. If you feel like a little muscular strain, like you went to the gym and did too many bicep curls, wait till you feel better. Wait till you feel better. Go out, try and relax a little more. Try and use less effort and then see if you can get to the point where you can do that 20 seconds and you feel fine the next day. If you feel like you hurt something, then you definitely wanna change what you were doing the next time you go out. First of all, rest, get better. Then uh, go out and do something a little different the next time till you can, maybe you get the muscular soreness, maybe you got bypass that. But the fundamental things you're gonna do differently are pretty straightforward. You don't wanna land with your foot out in front of your body on your heel because you're putting on the brakes and you're landing with an outstretched 
leg, um, that's going to be problematic. So you want to get your feet underneath you. Um, you want to probably pick up your cadence a little bit. So don't run faster, just move your feet a little faster because that makes it actually harder to land with your feet way out in front of you. Um, you want to think about lifting your foot off the ground instead of pushing off the ground, which you've gotten used to in big shoes. So the, the analogy I use is if you stepped on a bee, you would lift your foot by flexing your hip, not by pushing your foot into the ground. Same idea. You want to initiate that movement by lifting, not pushing. Um, one thing that you might want to do that's going to sound contrary to what I just said is try to do it wronger. Try to make it worse for a few strides because that'll give you the sense of what you're doing so that you can then do something very different because we're so used to what we're doing that it feels normal. So make it a little abnormal and that'll be like, oh. Um, one thing I used to do with people when we could actually see human beings without being six feet apart, I would have someone lean into my hands like till they're at about a 45 degree angle and try, and I would run backwards as they ran into me trying to keep the same pressure on my hands because that way they couldn't get their feet under, they couldn't even get their feet underneath them. They had to get their feet behind them or they'd fall on the ground. Yeah. And so, and then I would eventually just let go and they would kind of keep it up. I love that running drill. It's really fun. Um, another one that's fun is like, and you can do this in a park, but you have to get over the idea that some people who you've never met and will never see again will think you're crazy. So who cares? Is run the way little kids run. You keep your arms by your sides, let them just hang loosely. Don't be like a zombie, just don't do anything with them. And just kind of lean your head. Kids have you know enormous heads. So just lean your head and follow your head and let your head be the thing that guides you around and go forwards and backwards and in figure eights. And once it feels like, you know, your, your, your head is leading and your feet are barely keeping up, then just try to stand up a little bit and try to, try to keep that same feeling. And part of the reason for doing that is because it's goofy and fun. And if it isn't fun, do something different till you're having fun. You can spot a barefoot runner from 100 yards away. They're smiling. So true. As you were saying, do something wronger, it was triggered a thought in my head. And it's the, like, I think every high school coach ever has said it. And that is the like stride out, make those long strides. Like, I know my coach said it. I mean, I have short legs, so I did not do that, but it's like, it's just what's ingrained in us. And for like shoes aside, that longer stride is ingrained in us, especially for taller people. Cause they tell them to like use the, those legs. It's again, you know, look, my dad was a dentist and he said, do you know what the guy who graduated at the bottom of my class was called after he graduated? That's what he goes, doctor. So, mo and he also said 80% of the people in any profession are not qualified to be in that profession. And I think he was being generous. So look, my high school running coach, um, I had really bad shin splints and he said, is there anything that makes it feel better? I said, well, I don't notice it when I'm running. He goes, well, then keep running. I mean, how is that an intervention? You know, that was just ridiculous. He was the science teacher. They gave him running. I mean, and look, even if he's a running coach, I've never, I was going to say something. I'm not sure if this is true. I'll say it anyway. I don't know any running coach who can coach everything from the sprints to a marathon effect, equally as effectively. There are very few good sprinting coaches because um, it's a really, un, there's not a lot of us. It's a very unusual thing. And so that whole stride out thing is typically from someone who just doesn't know what he's talking about. And, and, and it's a misunderstanding of physics. So stride length is the distance between, you know, one foot strike and the next foot strike. It doesn't come from just reaching out arbitrarily. It comes from putting force into the ground at the right angle, which is much, with as much force as you can to basically jump yourself to the next spot. You don't need to artificially uh, um, exaggerate it. If you look at really good runners, 
their stride is essentially behind them. So they're hitting the ground and everything's behind them. They're not reaching out. You look at bad runners, their stride is in front of them. They're reaching out. And so this whole, how this whole stride out thing happened is from people who see long stride lengths, the distance between one foot strike and the next. And because you can't see behind you, because our eyes are in front of our body, we overemphasize things that we can see rather than things we can't. It's just a natural, I mean, imagine what life would be like if we had eyes on the back of our head as well. It would change the way we think about movement because we have more information available to us at all times. We're oblivious to what the hell we're doing behind us. That's a great point right there. Yeah, it's really interesting. So I, I'm 5'2". I have very short legs. And when I was in high school, I ran against people who were like over six foot. And it, I realize now why it helped me. I didn't know the theories behind it at the time, but I naturally gave myself a faster turnover thinking like if I just like, cause I need two steps equal there one type thing. And like, that right. was just the thought process that went through my head. Now I understand running technique and it all makes sense on why it actually worked for me. Right. Well, um, a couple of the Jamaican sprinters, but I mean, especially if you look at some of the, the world's fastest um, female hundred meter runners, they're five, two to five, five, you know, yeah. they're not, they're not big people and they're fast. I mean, there are ones that are taller, but, and I'm really horrible with names. I'm blanking on names of some of my favorite athletes. Um, I met, um, I met Lauren Williams. She's a three-time Olympian, a four-time Olympian, three-time medalist. Lauren's my height. I'm five, five. Maybe she's a little taller than I am, but you know, and she's kind of tall for a sprinter. So female sprinter. And um, uh, so in fact, it's one of the things people were surprised about Usain Bolt. Like how can he be so fast? Cause he's so big and he's got to move his legs through much more space. His stride, his stride frequency, stride frequency um, between an Olympic sprinter and just an average jogger, barely any different. It's just, you know, that's not what's doing it. It's the right angle with the right amount of force. And when you think about um, getting your feet into the ground a little faster, again, you pick up your cadence, you tend to end up with better angles just because if you're otherwise used to what, what, what feels normal for most people is a cadence that's too slow and they're overstriding. And so one cue to stop overstriding is, quote, shorten your stride. You're not shortening your stride. You're just putting your foot down underneath you. Your stride length can be just as long, if not longer, because you're hitting the ground at the right angle with the right amount of force. Yeah. And I think it's important, too, to point out that with that straight leg heel going into the ground, we're also basically putting the brakes on every single, Absolutely. Um, every single step we take rather than keeping that momentum going forward. Even, even worse, actually, because when you put your foot way out in front of you and you're pulling your foot along in the ground to re-accelerate, that's in a position where your hamstring and your glute are in the weakest spot. So you're, you're putting extra strain on the prime movers instead of getting them down on the ground and using them as hip extensors, which is what they're supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Which is also why overstriding is one of the main causes of those hamstring injuries too. That's right. That's right. And another one, you know, let's, let's not be coy about this. Running, especially high speed running is neurologically challenging. And sometimes the signals don't get to the right spot at the right time and crazy things happen. Um, you know, you see people who are professional sprinters at the top of their game and they pull a hamstring. It's often just because, you know, the nervous system didn't work perfectly on that one stride and there's just nothing you can do about it. Absolutely. I mean, and that's definitely good to point out or remind yeah. people that yes, we cannot prevent every injury by any means. Especially when you're really, when you really are pushing the envelope of performance, things happen. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, just to dive into zero shoes a little bit more, um, I'll let you kind of just promo your company as much as you want as far as like, I know when I started using zero shoes, it was pretty much the sandals and running shoes, but I know you have an extensive <laughs> selection of things now of all sorts. Um, just tell us a little bit about zero shoes, why, um, why they are as good as they are. Why they exist. <laughs> why they um, exist, yes. Well, you know, our, again, our whole idea is um, letting you have as much of a natural movement experience as possible while giving you the protection you need and sometimes the function you may need. So the fundamental things that are true about everything we do, a wider and foot-shaped toe box, so we're not trying to squeeze your toes together, um, low to the ground for balance and agility, no um, heel lift because that'll mess with your posture, no toe spring, that'll mess with your gait, really, really flexible to let your feet bend and move naturally. Um, the soles are designed to give you the right combination of protection and feedback, and they're made really durably. They have a 5,000 miles sole warranty, unlike most running shoes where they say you need to replace them every three to 500 miles. And research from Dr. Brian Heiderscheidt shows that many of those shoes are actually crapped by about 150 miles. And the new maximal shoes, um, I think even the one from Brooks, they even say it's only got 100 miles of wear in it. Because this, you know, this super lightweight, super big foam just collapses like there's no tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So uh, we have a complete line of casual and performance shoes, boots, and sandals that people use for everything from taking a walk to running 100-mile ultramarathons. And some of the things that we do that are different, um, I'm just trying to find a good one. Well, it's too, I don't want to keep reaching. So, you know, the way our products have evolved was mostly from people saying, I love this thing that you've done, and now I need this other thing. So at first, we were a do-it-yourself sandal kit company. And people said, that's really cool, but I'm not going to make my own shoes. So we figured out a way to do a ready-to-wear version of that idea. Um, and I invented a lacing system that no one had ever thought of in 5,000 years somehow. And then people said, that's cool. But, you know, that lacing system had a thing, thong, kind of a thong that went between your toes. And they thought it would be painful. Even though it's not a flip-flop, you don't have to jam your foot into the thong. The lacing system holds all the way around your foot. So there's not really any pressure there. But I got it. So we came up with a way of doing a sport sandal. So the webbing goes around your foot instead of between your toes. They said, that's cool. But what about in the winter when it's cold or I need to go to the office? And we came up um, actually with this shoe, a canvas casual shoe. And people said, that's cool, but I want to be a runner. So we need a running shoe. So we did a running shoe version of that, running fitness everything shoe. And they went, that's cool, but I need a trail shoe. And it's just, you know, so we then added just a luggier tread to something like this. And then that's cool, but I need a boot because I need more ankle protection, not support protection. And so we came up with like the high top version of this. And, and then that's cool, but I need something a little more formal. So everything has really been primarily from people telling us what they want next. And then every now and then we think of something that they hadn't thought of and either we're right or we're not. Um, but we've mostly been right, which has been very satisfying. So one example, no one asked us for a winter snow boot. And we came out with one this past fall and didn't know how it was going to do, um, and sold out like that. Um, the only person who asked us for like a, a kind of dressy ballet flat-like thing was my wife, who said, I'm going out trying to raise money for our company, and I could use a nice pair of shoes instead of my sandals, even though she would show up in some of our sandals, and people go, oh my God, those are so cool. Where'd you get those? Um, but she wanted something that you know looked like it was more professional. So we came out with that. I had no idea how it was going to do. Sold out. Um, uh, nobody asked us for a little slip on that looks kind of familiar, but you know, we had a hunch that it would work sold out. So the, but the key thing for everything we do is giving you 
again, as much of a natural movement experience, as much feedback as you can get, as you can handle with the protection level or functional level that you might need for something specific. Like our winter snow boot isn't quite as flexible as our other shoes because it has a fully seam sealed lining and big luggy sole to deal with the snow. And so, you know, we do the best we can. We're always trying to improve with each new iteration. Um, but at a certain place, the most important thing for us is that natural fit, natural motion. Then the barefoot feeling is um, the next thing after that. Yeah, that's awesome. And I can say, I'm trying to think, my Prios are probably a good five years old right now, I think. No, uh, four. Four? Four years. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know when I replace them. All I know is I have not needed new shoes since. Uh, that's great. You know, we've had a lot of business people tell us that um, this whole idea of making things this durable is really stupid. And we say, uh, yeah, you can shut up and leave now. Because Lane and I, we run our business and everyone does this to a certain extent. Um, we run the company based on what we would want if we were customers of the company. Mm -hmm. So we try to make things durable. We try to make things affordable. We try to make things functional in, you know, and versatile. Uh, and, and we like that. And if someone says, I've been wearing the same pair of sandals for eight years, that makes me ecstatic. Because, I mean, where else are you going to buy a $20 do-it-yourself sandal making kit that you wear for eight years? That's awesome. Yeah. And when, when business people say, well, you know, you need to make it not last as long. It's like, then you don't understand what we're doing. Yeah. I think I have that same perspective for me as a coach too. It's like I, or as a therapist, it's like, I'm trying to work myself out of the job with every single person. Cause I want to mm -hmm. teach them how to move better. So they only see me if those random fluke injuries happen. I was thinking about that this morning. Cause again, I was doing during when COVID first kicked in, um, I, I was doing a pull-up challenge and I was doing this one kind of pull-ups. They call them prisoner pull-ups, I think. And mm -hmm. so you're, you're, the bar is going this way and you're just doing this. Yeah. And it just put a little torque on my elbow and at 58, I don't heal as fast as I would like. Um, and so, um, you know, it kind of still a little tweaked. And um, I was thinking about it this morning that they said, well, let's just schedule eight appointments. Like, why don't we just schedule three appointments and see if you can, help me learn what to do to fix this on my own. Because yeah. the, the idea, there is a conflict of interest that to make a living as a coach or therapist, if you can drag it out, so much the better. But how is that helpful for humans? Yeah, it's not. And it's unfortunately, it's the, it's what most therapists do. But think, yeah, it's think, not helpful think, to a human, I don't think. No, and I think many of them do it sub unconsciously. Yeah. They think that they're not doing that. But how can you not be swayed by knowing that you have two choices? You, you know, get an extra couple of sessions with this person or find another person. That's harder. Yeah. And unfortunately, you know, not to have the too much of the healthcare debate discussion, but unfortunately insurance companies dictate a lot of what they're allowed to do as well. Um, I had extensive shoulder surgery three and a little over three years ago. My doctor said, you're going to need two years of therapy to get over what we just did. The insurance company said I was fine after four sessions with a PT. Awesome. Cool. <laughs> and that is why I do private pay because I've done two insurance companies. Yeah. yeah. For that reason. Like an ACL, you get 12 visits. No. Like right. that's not okay. <laughs> no, it really and I actually I finally got through to to the, like the grievance and dispute head of grievance and disputes for insurance companies in all of Colorado. And I said, um, is there any way we can avoid this process where you deny my claim and then I prove that you shouldn't deny the claim and then you approve the claim? And she goes, no, that's the way it's set up. Yeah, it's sad. Yeah, it is. It's very sad. 
Well, Stephen, thank you so much for your time today. If someone wants to find your shoes or just find out more information, where can they find you? Not surprisingly, zeroshoes.com, X-E-R-O shoes.com, or if you're on social media, either slash zero shoes or at zero shoes, depending on where you're slashing or adding. <laughs> and then your podcast is? Oh, thank you. I forgot. Um, so I have a podcast called The Movement Movement, and you can find that wherever podcasts are sold, and, um, or go to jointhemovementmovement.com to find all those places where you can find all the previous episodes and the places you can find us. Awesome. Thank you so much for all of that. And um, I look forward to connecting again in the future. Thank you. Thank you. I look forward to what's next. And before I close out today, I want to take a moment to talk to you about the foot and ankle fix for runners. Foot and ankle pain is such a common injury with runners. And yet it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be bothering you constantly. It doesn't have to be shutting you down from being able to run. But many times it does because we don't do the right things for it. That is why I created the Foot and Ankle Fix for Runners. It's an online program that'll give you the right things to do in order to resolve your foot and ankle issues once and for all and let you really get back to training like you want to. So if you're interested in checking out the Foot and Ankle Fix for Runners, head over to getyourfixpt.com courses and you can see a link for the foot and ankle fix for runners, as well as all of my other online programs. Thank you again so much for listening today. I really hope you enjoyed this conversation. And until next time, let's go out and be highly functional. <laughs>